Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this section of Scripture, I'm going to take up 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-11. through 11. I will call this section False Prophets and Teachers Part 1 because Peter is going to spend the whole chapter, chapter 2, on False Prophets and Teachers. Part 2 we'll take up on our next audio, verses 12-22. through 22. Our context is this. In the last six verses of 2 Peter, verse 16-21, through 21, we learned about Christ's glory and the prophetic word. As Peter recounts his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw the glorified Christ, and he also heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I delight. And so we now start in verse 1 of Second Peter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Now, false prophets, there are plenty of those in the Old Testament among the people. Peter is referring to the Old Testament. Let me read you some scriptures. Isaiah nine fourteen through 16 So the Lord cut off Israel's head and tail, palm branch and reed, in a single day. The head is the elder, the honored one. The tail is the prophet, the lying teacher. Jeremiah five thirty one. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own authority. My people love it like this, but what will you do at the end of it? I can tell you right now, it wasn't good. Jeremiah 14, 14, But the Lord said to me, These prophets are prophesying a lie in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, worthless divination, the deceit of their own minds. Jeremiah twenty three thirty. Therefore take note, I am against the prophets, the Lord's declaration, who steal my words from each other. John Gill says this, quote, There were many in Jeremiah's time and in the times of Ezekiel and in Ahab's time, besides the 450 prophets of Baal slain by Elijah, there were 400 that called themselves the prophets of the Lord, among whom went forth a lying spirit encouraging Ahab to go up to Ramoth-Gilead, promising him prosperity and success. Zedekiah the son of Chenana, with whom Micaiah the true prophet had much contention, was at the head of them. So Gill gives even more examples in the Old Testament. So false prophecy was something the people were very aware of, the Jewish people. And so Peter uses that as an example to say, hey, just like in the old Israel, in the new Israel, in the, new, in the church, we've got the same problem, false prophets and false teachers. Now, false teachers in the New Testament, oh my goodness, it's amazing how many times they're mentioned and how much the early church had to deal with these false teachers. Let me give you some examples. I'm going to give you a run-through of the New Testament. Matthew 24, 4-5, this is the Olivet Discourse. Then Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. Acts 20, verses 29-30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, that's the Ephesian elders at Miletus, not sparing the flock, and men will rise up from your own number with deviant doctrines to lure the disciples into following them deviant doctrines. Sounds like Joel Osteen. Galatians 1, 6-9, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to change the good news about the Messiah. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than that which we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse be on him. Philippians 3.2, watch out for the dogs, watch out for evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Colossians 2.4, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. 
Colossians 2.8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-3, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter, as if from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. False teachers, 1 Timothy 1, 3-7, and as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, Timothy, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. Paul complains about teachers that don't know what they're talking about. Are you listening, Joel Osteen? 1 John 2, 18-19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. 1 John 2, 22-23. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Second John 1, 7-11. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, and don't say welcome to him, for the one who says welcome to him shares in his evil works. Jude 1, 3, and 4. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in my stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our Lord into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord. So, I think that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the early church had a big, big problem with false teachers. And the apostle said, deal with it. Don't let it go. Don't tolerate it, but deal with it. Peter says here in verse 1, 2 Peter 2, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly. All heretics are cowards. They have to sneak their false doctrine into orthodox churches. We read in Jude 1 and 4 this idea about stealth. For some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. They have come in by stealth, Jude says. That reminds me, a friend of mine had hyperpredators, heretics in his church, and they were a sleeper cell. They stayed in that church for 10 years without ever telling people what they were doing. And then all of a sudden, they started having secret Bible studies without telling the Orthodox leaders of the church what was going on. And they had a big blow-up, church split. And finally, the good guys had to kick the heretics out church almost died, but I drove my friend crazy. Horrible experience for him, I'm sure. Heretics are sneaky. They're gutless. 
They don't have the guts to stand up and say, we're preaching this false doctrine in front of, of you. Prove me wrong. Because if they did, a true shepherd of the flock would get up and expose them pretty quickly. Now let's look at the last part of verse 1 here in Second Peter 2. These people that secretly bring in destructive heresies, what do they do? They're even denying the master who bought them. They deny the master who bought them. Oh, now, who are these false teachers? Are they Christians or are they non-Christians? Well, this verse here is a favorite of Arminians because they say, see, these false teachers deny the master who redeemed them, who atoned for them. Therefore, there's a general atonement, and some people can reject Jesus' atonement. So Jesus didn't die for, he died for everyone, but some people reject it. That's the Arminian view, general atonement view. And then we see in the last part of the scripture, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. That means that they are going to die. And if you take these false prophets as being believers who have strayed from the truth, and that means that there's no perseverance of the saints and they fall away. So this is one of the, the Armenians' favorite verse. Now, before we start examining it, we have got to point out that there's two options as to who these false prophets are. Are they believers or non-believers? Well, if we say that they're believers... And there's arguments to say that because, after all, the Scripture says the Lord bought them, so they must be, must be saved. If they're believers, then we have to say they backslid mightily. NIV Study Bible quotes Second Peter 2, 20 through 22, which is next, next time's audio. The NIV Study Bible points that passage which says this, For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness then, see, they've known the way of righteousness, and after knowing it, to turn back from the holy command delivered for them. Now, knowing the way of righteousness is not necessarily accepting the way of righteousness, but we're going to assume that these people are saved. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing itself, wallows in the mud. Okay, so these could be backslidden Christians, apostates, who are trashing the faith. The other option is, no, they were not saved. They were fake from the get-go. They never were born again. They're just, they're not really heretics. They're blasphemers and false teachers. Now, note why this is, or could be, a very favorite verse of the Arminians. If we take the position that they these false teachers were saved, then Arminians could deny perseverance of the saints because they end a swift destruction. But if, on the other hand, we say they are not saved, then Arminians can deny limited atonement because the unsaved people were bought by their master, by God, or by Jesus. So either way, the Arminians can strike. Well, first of all, let me, let's look at this idea that they were not saved. We can first point out the fact that there can be destructive heresies taught by people who are saved. So just because they're teaching the destructive heavenly does not ipso facto mean that these guys were unsaved. After all, Joel Osteen is teaching a destructive heresy every week, and I assume he's saved. I believe he is. So destructive heresies does not in and of itself prove that these people were unbelievers. However, I think, in my opinion, that verse 2 and 3, the following context, does indicate that these people were non-believers. Many will follow their unrestrained ways, and the way of truth will be blasphemed because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with deceptive words. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not sleep. That doesn't sound like believers to me. So I'm going to assume they're believers. Now, if they're believers, and I am an Augustinian, a Calvinist, I'm not an Arminian, so how do I deal with this verse that says that these people denied the master who bought them? Well, first of all, who's the master? Well, people debate that. It could be God. It could be Jesus. It's not clear. 
But just for the sake of the Armenian argument, let's assume that Master is Jesus. So these non-Christians denied Jesus who bought them. Oh, Jesus bought them. That means he died on the cross for them. For, that means he redeemed them. He, he gave their blood for their redemption price, even though they rejected him. That means Jesus died for everybody in the world. All of his, the blood that he shed was for every person on the planet. The Calvinist, on the other hand, in my opinion correctly, says that no, Jesus died only for the elect. Because if he died for everybody on the planet, then that means his atonement failed in the majority of cases, which makes his atonement look pretty sad sack. So, how do I deal with this problem from a Calvinist point of view, denying the master who bought them? How do these unsaved, I'm assuming they're unsaved, how do these unsaved false teachers deny the master who bought them? Well, the standard Calvinist answer, which is what the answer I hold to, is that their master bought them out of Egypt, because that phrase is found in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, 6 in the King James, Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? The father that bought them, is he not your father that bought thee? In other words, the one who redeemed you out of slavery. So Peter, according to this view, this Calvinist view, Peter is saying that God bought all the Israelites out of Israel. So he's talking about temporary salvation from Egypt. He's not talking about eternal salvation from hell. We also see the same idea in Exodus 15:16. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased, the people that thou hast purchased. So the Israelites were bought people. So that's what Peter, according to the Calvinists, is saying here. These false teachers are dying. Jesus who bought them. Now, of course, we have to assume that the people, these false heretics, are Jews, which is easy to do because Peter's writing to Jews, most probably. So that's how you answer it. That's how you answer the Armenian charge. The master who bought them didn't buy the non-Christian unbelieving Jews with his blood for eternal salvation. It was God, not Jesus. God was the master who bought them out of slavery in Egypt, who redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. By the way, let me point out that this view of limited atonement is pejorative. A lot of Calvinists like to say particular atonement because the atonement is aimed at the elect, not everybody in the world. But we need to point out that Arminians' view is not just a universal atonement or general atonement. It's limited, too, because it might not be limited in scope. It covers everybody in the world, but it is limited in effect because it doesn't save everybody that it's aimed at. That atonement does not. All right, enough theology for this verse. Let's go now. To verse 2. Well, before we go to verse 2, let's talk about the swift destruction that's going to fall on these heretics. Here's some options as to what that swift destruction is. It could be immediate physical calamity. The NIV Study Bible denies that. It could be sudden death and entrance into hell. The NIV Study Bible and Gill suggest that. It could be doom at the Lord's second coming. The NIV Study Bible suggests that. Swift destruction. Mm, the second coming doesn't sound too swift to me. Sudden death and interest into hell sounds more like it. God's going to take care of these people quickly. We move on to verses 2 and 3, 2 Peter 2. Many will follow their unrestrained ways, and the way of truth will be blasphemed because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with deceptive words. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. Notice that they are unrestrained. That means extremely immoral, according to the NIV Study Bible. Many manuscripts actually here say lascivious instead of unrestrained. It means the same thing. 
So these heretics were not only doctrinal deviants, they were moral deviants too. The way of truth would be blasphemed because of them. Oh boy, does the cause of Christ get trashed when you have pedophile priests or you got adulterous, fornicating pastors. Oh my gosh, it's the damage is just terrible. The way of truth will be blasphemed because of them. People start preaching against God. I just saw a guy on a Ray Comfort witnessing video the other day say, well, all they want is the money. Why do I don't believe in God? All they want is the money. And Ray Comfort said, yeah, that's called hypocrisy, and God's going to judge that. But he did that, didn't that person, he just kept saying, all they want is money. The way of truth will be blasphemed because of them. They will exploit you in their greed. Now, the way of truth, that's doctrinal truth, will be blasphemed. It's interesting how moral deviancy is connected with doctrinal deviancy. These doctrinal deviants were also moral deviants. Now, I must say that that doesn't always happen. I mean, I'm assuming Joel Osteen's moral as he can be. I'm sure he is, but he's still teaching doctrinal deviancy. There's a lot of people that teach doctrinal nonsense that are moral, so you can't go by that. But oftentimes, people get loose with their doctrine, get loose with their morals, as the NIV Study Bible puts it, the Christian faith is both correct doctrine and correct living. Let's look at another passage at the end of chapter 2 here in Second Peter, verses 18 and 19, that shows that the moral deviancy was accompanied by, that the doctrinal deviancy was accompanied by moral de- deviancy. Verse 18, for by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery, people who have barely escaped from those living era. Error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. So these boastful, empty words that were spoken were accompanied with seduction, fleshly desires, probably sexual debauchery. The way of truth is blasphemed. Why? Because these evil people were naming themselves as Christians. Oh, what a mess. You have to stop heresy because it's a terrible witness. Heretics, and I like, I'm looking at my notes now, which I wrote years ago. Heretics must be stopped. I repeat, heretics must be stopped. Christians must be concerned about how they appear to unbelievers. We don't want the way of truth maligned in front of the world. First Peter 2.12 says this, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God. So you got to do good works, folks, if you don't want to get the gospel spoken against. And we love the Jesus, and we don't want that to happen. Now, notice that verse 3 says they will exploit you in their greed. The heretics were probably charging money for people to listen to all that nonsense they were teaching, according to the NIV Study Bible. Their judgment, their condemnation was pronounced long ago. That means in the Old Testament, according to the NIV Study Bible. And Peter's going to give us some examples here in just, verse, in just a few minutes in verses 4 through 9. No other demons being thrown in a Tartarus, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Peter ends up verse 3 and he says their destruction does not sleep. In other words, things aren't going to go rocking along with them teaching their false doctrines. Sooner or later, God's going to wake up, going to take them, take them out. Because the heretics hadn't been destroyed yet by God, this might have been misinterpreted according to the NIV Study Bible. People might have thought that God didn't care. But actually, he's awake and he's planning their destruction, Peter says. We go now to verse 4, 2 Peter 2. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment, semicolon, we'll stop there. This is the first of three examples showing that God will destroy the wicked and rescue the godly. And that's the theme for these next several verses is God destroys 
the bad guys and he rescues the good guys. Now, of course, why is Peter doing this is because he's using the Old Testament as a as an object lesson to encourage the Christians who were being persecuted. He's writing to Jews. These are probably Jewish Christians in the 60s, right before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. These are diaspora Jews he's probably writing to. They might not be directly affected by that destruction of the temple, but the Jews are persecuting all over the place, not just in Jerusalem. When that temple went down, their persecution would be gone and they would be rescued and the bad guys would be judged. So three examples, and here's the first. God didn't spare angels, but threw them into Tartarus. Well, first of all, where is Tartarus? God, the Greeks used this word to describe the place where evil spirits were kept. The word is nowhere else in the New Testament or the Septuagint, so we have to go to the Greek writers to get the meaning, and the Greek said it was where the evil spirits lived. And so Peter used the Greek word there. Then I've just translated, translates it as hell, but I'm exactly sure, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what is meant. Now I know people go on and on about paradise as separate from Hades, as separate from Tartarus, and on and on with the way that dispensationalists especially think they they split things, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ, and you got five different pla five different names for one place, they'll have five different places instead of five different names for one place. Well we're not going to do that. We're going to assume that Tartarus means hell. So these demons were thrown into hell. Now what Old Testament passage is being referred to? Well, some people say it's the famous sons of God in Genesis 6, the ones who came down and have sex with the daughters of men. Now, of course, that passage in itself is controversial because some people say that produced the Nephilim, and some people say it was the, the sons of God were the of the righteous line of Seth, and that you didn't have any demons coming down having sex with, with women. So that's controversial. So I tend to not want to go with that. The NIV Study Bible says that these angels who got thrown into hell, thrown in, into Tartarus, were angels who sinned before the fall of Adam and Eve, and they became the devil and his demons, as John Gill says. Adam Clark says this, quote, The tradition of their fall, the fall of the angels, is in all countries and in all religions, which is kind of interesting. But the accounts given are various and contradictory, and no wonder for we have no direct revelation on the subject. So it's interesting that everybody has sort of a dim racial memory of demons being thrown into hell. So we're going to take it that way. God didn't spare angels when they threw him into hell. That's when Lucifer and his, and his angels rebelled against God and got thrown into the hell, into Tartarus, into hell, where they were delivered to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. Now, chains of darkness, question now is, well, how can they possess people? And how can they demonize people? And how can they harass people as they did in the New Testament and, and as they do today even? Well, the NIV study Bible says helpfully the scripture gives no explanation. Well, whoopee. Here's what Wayne Grudem's systematic theology says, and I think this makes a lot of sense. He says, chains doesn't mean that demons aren't free to roam earth. It just means that they, that they are under God's punishment. They are God's slaves. That was a metaphorical way of saying that the demons were God's slaves. They kept them in chains. In other words, they're God's slaves until the great white throne judgment at the end of time when the demons are thrown into hell, and that's the end of them. Now, Grudem doesn't do this, but I would say this. Look at verse 9 right below our verse here in Second Peter 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The unrighteous are kept under punishment for the day of judgment. Well, if unrighteous are kept under punishment for the day of judgment, and they can go out and do demonic type things, rob banks, persecute Christians, they can, they're free to roam the earth doing evil until they're punished on the day of judgment, so why can't the same thing be said of demons? I think that makes a lot of sense. Another way to solve the problem, according to James and Fawcett and Brown, is, is that the demons are permitted to leave hell temporarily. 
sort of like a get out of jail free pass, a temporary pass to go harass humans, and they got to go back to Tartarus. Well, I don't think so. That's, that's very creative, but I don't think that's what it is. I just think it means that they were, God's got control over the demons until he finally does away with them. But that doesn't mean they can't harass not Christians now, because Christians have the authority over the demons, but people who don't have authority over the demons and who open themselves up to demonic activity through such things as homosexuality or sorcery, the occult, that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean they're not going to be judged, because they're in chains. Second Peter 2, five, And if he, God, didn't spare the ancient world, this is the second example of destruction of the bad guys, rescue of the good guys. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, here's how the argument goes, if, since God knew how to punish demons, he knew how to punish the victims of the flood, he knew how to punish Sodom and Gomorrah, he certainly would know how to punish the false teachers bedeviling the church, and he knows how to preserve the righteous from them. Now, when he says, if he didn't spare the ancient world, the ancient world is the world before the flood. He protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. That description of Noah is found nowhere else in Scripture, as the NIV Study Bible says, but it is found in Josephus, as the Study Bible says. Josephus calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Well, how is he a preacher of righteousness? Well, because he told all the future flood victims what was going to happen to them if they continued in their sin. There's a big flood coming. You guys don't believe me, but I'm building this ark, and I'm going to float over it, and you're going to drown in it. So he preached the righteousness of God and the judgment of God. Seven others were protected, the seven others. Noah's wife was the first others. Noah's three sons makes four. Noah's three daughters-in-law makes seven. And then, of course, Noah himself makes eight. These eight are mentioned in First Peter 3, verse 20. Who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared? In it a few, that is, eight people were saved through water. Eight people. Note the big contrast in numbers between the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous was the whole frippin' ancient world. The righteous were only eight. Seems like it's always that way, isn't it? The righteous are always a minority compared to the unrighteous. That's sometimes hard for yours truly to take, but it's, that's the way it is. Now, this flood, Noah's flood, came on the world of the ungodly. We read this in Genesis 6, 5, when the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme in his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Evil, 24-7. Genesis 6, 11 and 12, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. And that's what men do when they're not chastened by either the internal work of the Holy Spirit within them or their conscience, Romans 2, conscience written on their pagan little pagan hearts or whether held back by fear of judgment. This is what human beings do. They get corrupt, evil, wicked, mean, and nasty. Look at the history of the 20th century if you don't believe me. Now we go to verse 6. This is the third Old Testament example of destruction of the ungodly and rescue of the godly. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to ruin, making them an example to those who were going to be ungodly, and of course the if is, yes, he did. It's more like since, since he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it wouldn't hurt Christians every now and then be reminded to remind the wicked of their fate. I mean, I've just watched Ray Comfort, who is one of the best evangelists and personal witness, witness people I've ever seen. He constantly very gently, but he very constantly actually convinces them that they're lying, stealing, blaspheming fornicators. He then says, well, you know, so what's going to happen to you on the day of judgment when you're judged by God for your your thoughts and activities? And it's amazing how people, they have a conscience in them. And they say, yeah, that's not going to be too good. 
That's how he, that's how he tries to witness to them. Judgment is there, folks. And this is the New Testament, too, by the way. We have judgment. Well, it's talking about the Old Testament, but it's being used in a New Testament example to talk about judgment of the false teachers. We go to verses 7, 8, and 9. And if he rescued righteous lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral, for as he lived among them, that righteous man tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard. He thinks Sodom and Gomorrah was bad. He, should, he ought to be living in America and see how bad that is. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So once again, we see destruction of the unrighteous when the volcanoes or the fire went up, the smoke and the sulfur destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That was the destruction of the bad guys. And the rescue of the good guys was when Lot and his family got out of there and God saved them. So if God knows how to do all that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment, that would be the false teachers and false prophets, until the day of judgment. It's a comforting thought as we think of the lunatics that are now destroying America, the cancel culture, the Twitter mob crucifying everybody every chance they get to leaving a bunch of liberal intellectuals are scared to death, signing manifestos saying, whatever happened to free speech? Well, it's gone. That's what's happened to it. He rescued righteous lot, Peter says in verse 7. The problem with that, Righteous Lot offered to turn his daughters over to the wicked townsmen that were screaming for his angelic guests so they could homosexually abuse them. He says, okay, well, don't do that now. These are angels. I'll just let my daughter. You can have my daughters. That's righteous? Well, the NIV study Bible tries to mitigate Lot's transgressions there by saying that the East, that Eastern notions of hospitality required hosts to protect guests at all costs. Well, that doesn't cut it with me. You give your daughters away to those thugs i think the better way to explain that that term righteous lot is by saying that lot was righteous in the sense that he defended god and opposed paganism not, he, not that he was right in everything he did he was righteous because he was tormented by what he saw around him a right unrighteous man would not have cared probably would have joined in the unrighteous festivities here's a good quote from psalm 119 158 about godly people who don't like the sin around them i have seen the disloyal and feel disgust because they do not keep your word gosh you would think that psalmist was writing today in america but he wasn't he was talking about the old testament jews so he lot was righteous by defending god and opposing paganism and being sick by what was going on he was not righteous in trying to hand his daughters over that's just a general term righteous lot now he mentions rescue and punishment in verse 9, which, as I've just finished saying, is the theme here over these last three Old Testament examples. He rescues the godly and he punishes the bad guys. That's in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, notice that little preposition from. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials because the godly are not preserved from trials. They are preserved in trials. So rescuing the godly from trials means you have to be in the trial to be rescued out of it, right? So that doesn't mean we're rescued from trials and we never have trials. But we are preserved in the trial long enough so God can rescue us. And again, I'm saying when you talk about trials and suffering, that's a serious subject. And you tell a Christian that, you need to tell them. His life is not a bed of roses. roses. Jesus didn't promise you a rose garden. But by golly, he does promise to deliver you and to deliver you from trials. And if you leave that part of the message out, all you're doing is scaring the blazes out of people and depressing them. So don't do that, please. We go to verses 10 and 11. It's in the middle of a sentence. So let me go back and pick up verse 9. 
The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, comma, verse 10, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. So especially those that are, get, that are reserved for punishment would be those who follow polluting desires of the flesh. That's probably some kind of sexual sin. According to the NIV study Bible, that's certainly what it sounds like. It could, in particular, be homosexuality because he's just mentioned Sodom, which was famous for homosexuality. And also, we look at the parallel passage in Jude, as John Gill says, Jude 1.7, In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions, just as angels did, and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Ooh, just as angels did. That's, that, that's a verse that the Nephilim people like to say in Genesis 6 refers to the perversion that those, demons, those angels did, those demons did when they had sex with the daughters of men. But we're not going to get into that. Sodom and Gomorrah were famous for homosexuality, as I said. Jude 1.7, that verse I just read in the King James, and switching to the King James translation, says this. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Homo Christian Study Bible says they practiced perversions, which is the same thing. They were homosexuals. And those homosexuals were held up until the judgment at the end of the world. And by the way, these homosexual Christians who want to justify their sin, they say that what God was upset with here was that, not with the homosexuality of the people, but the fact that they were violating the, the norms of hospitality. And that's what God was so upset with them. I don't think so, because it says here in Jude 1-7, Sodom and Gomorrah committed sexual immorality and perversions. It's not talking about violations of hospitality. It's talking about homosexuality. There's going to be payment for homosexuality and it's not going to be pleasant. I don't give a ding-dong damnable thing about what the Supreme Court and Obergefell said. Now these people who are following the polluting desires of the flesh also are said to not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. And of course the question is, is what are the glorious ones? That's at verse 10. You know, the Bible says as op one option it could be church leaders. John Gill says apostles. For example, in Exodus 22:28, the law says you must not blaspheme God or curse a leader among your people. Well, I can't imagine, you know, your pastor being called a glorious one, your elder being called a glorious one. Why would the false teachers be blaspheming a glorious one? To blaspheme somebody is to take some, something that's divine and, and bringing it down to the profane world, and your elders are not like that, so I don't think that's the answer. Angels are probably who are referred to here, and this is the NIV Study Bible and John Gill suggests that option. Then the next question is, is why would heretics be slandering angels? Well, if you look at the parallel passage in Jude, and you see that Michael refused to condemn Lucifer in this passage in Jude 1, 8 through 10, that I'm going to read for you in just a minute. If Michael won't condemn Lucifer, if Michael the archangel is going to be nice to Satan, the chief angel, even though that angel, that chief angel has fallen, well, by golly, these false heretics ought to be easy on damning angels. Well, the next question is, is why would they be damning angels? I mean, well, I don't think they're going to be damning fallen angels. I would think it would be they will be damning, damning God's good angels, and therefore they would be subject to condemnation and punishment for doing that. So let's just assume here that in verse 10, they, these followers these followers of the polluting desires of the flesh do not tremble when they blaspheme angels of god however angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the lord angels aren't even bothering to 
to slander the false teachers, which would probably be fairly easy to do. Now let's read the parallel passage in Jude, as I promised, Jude 1, verses 8 through 10. Nevertheless, these dreamers likewise defile their flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. Yeah, that's probably talking about blaspheming angels, same as Peter, same as, uh, Peter here in Second Peter. Verse 9 in Jude 1. Yet Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, and I have no idea what that is, but that's not relevant to the point here. Michael the archangel did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, against Lucifer, against the devil, but said, The Lord rebuke you. In other words, he's going to say, The Lord's going to take care of you, Satan, but I'm not going to say anything bad about you. One angel's not, a good angel's not going to say anything bad about a bad angel because the good angel respects the angelic authority, the angelic status that Lucifer used to have. Verse 10, Jude continues, These people blaspheme anything they don't understand. What they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves with these things. The NIV Study Bible says even good angels don't run down bad angels, as we saw there in the book of Jude. Okay, so the glorious ones that these people are blaspheming church leaders, probably not. Good angels, probably. And I don't think they're bad angels because they're called glorious ones. And why, why would you blaspheme a demon? I don't, you know, I don't think that's what's being talked about. So it's good angels. Option two. Here's option three from Adam Clark. Jesus. Peter could have been referring to Zechariah 3.1. Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord was standing with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Well, that's really a stretch, especially since glorious ones is plural and Jesus is singular. So I think Adam Clark has been just a little too creative. So we're going to assume it's angels, good angels. They do not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. They're not only content, these false teachers, to blaspheme God, they're blaspheming angels. And the, the very angels they're blaspheming, mighty, powerful, more powerful, more mighty than the blasphemers, those angels don't even bring a charge against the false teachers, which shows how bad and how rebellious against authority these false teachers are. Nothing worse against people who rebel against authority. Look at these rioters, these people that are shooting fireworks and lasers at cops that are defending federal courthouses in Portland. They're throwing balloons full of excrement, uh, frozen bottles of hot water of ice to try to clobber the cops with, starting fires. They hate authority, and they are perfectly evil. And they deserve to be in jail. Of course, the wussy puss mayors who are running these cities won't do anything about it. But if they were functioning as in Romans 13, they would put the fear of God in those in those people that are rebelling against authority. But oh no, we've got to go to talk about how the cops are terrible, evil. We got to take an example of one dirty cop, a bad cop, or a cop who's unjustly used his authority. Instead of saying, let's go after that cop and see that he gets justice. No, we've got to extrapolate from that to all cops. All cops are bad, not just the one cop that did bad. And so what happens is you end up reviling godly authority that God gave, and then you have anarchy. Well, demons love to rebel against God's authority. So do terrorists. So does every human being on this planet. We love to rebel. Maybe not as far as a terrorist, but we, we, that's what we do. We rebel against authority. It's a wonderful thing to submit ourselves to a loving master, Jesus Christ. That's the kind of authority it's easy to submit to. Now, Adam Clark apparently thinks that the glorious ones here are fallen angels. They do not bring a slanderous charge against the false teachers. Adam Clark says about that, quote, Bringing an account of the actions of the fallen angels before the Lord in judgment. Simply state the fact, if you're doing that, 
He says, simply state the facts without exaggeration, without permitting anything of a bitter, reviling, or railing spirit to enter into their accusations. Well, but I don't think he's talking about fallen angels here, to be quite honest with you. is what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. We are to avoid irreverence in regard to them, not on their account, but on account of God. A warning to those who use Satan's name irreverently and in blasphemy. When the ungodly curses Satan, he curses his own soul. Well, that's an interesting doctrine. You, you can't say bad things about the devil. I just have trouble with that. I remember one time I was in Texas at a training school for Christian principles, and I just had some kind of encounter with a demon. I can't remember the encounter, but I do remember talking about it to this young fundamentalist principal, and I said something bad about the devil. I said something to him like he was an SOB or something like that. I forgot what I said, but. Oh, my gosh, you should have seen the eyes on this guy. And I'll be honest with you, I'm scared myself, too. I thought, man, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And I thought of this verse. Now, I've expressed my doubts that Peter is talking about the false teachers slandering demons, bad angels, but rather I think that it was the false teachers slandering good angels. But there are many, many Christians who say that it's referring to bad angels. Why? I just quoted you from Clark and Jameson Foss and Brown who just assumed that. Let me read you a good quote from Barnes, the commentator who believes that also with Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown that Peter was talking about the false teachers slandering demons, not God's angels. Quote, it is not, this is from Barnes, quote, it is not known precisely to what Peter alludes here, nor on what the statement here is based. There can be little doubt, however, as Benson has remarked, that from the strong resemblance between what Peter says and what Jude says in Jude 1, 9 through 10, there is allusion to the same thing, and probably both refer to some common tradition among the Jews respecting the contention of the archangel Michael with the devil about the body of Moses. As the statement in Jude is the most full, it is proper to explain the passage before us by reference to that. And we may suppose that, though Peter uses the plural term and speaks of angels, yet that he really had the case of Michael in his eye and meant to refer to that as an example of what angels, what the angels do. Whatever may have been the origin of this tradition, no one can doubt that what is here said of the angels accords with probability, and no one can prove that it is not true. Well, no, I can't prove it's not true, but I still don't believe it, because I can't imagine why false teachers would be going around slandering angels. Slandering demons. I guess we have the case here where Michael is an angel and he doesn't slander the bad angels, Lucifer, and so that's in Jude, and we then use that interpretation to come back here to Second Peter and say that Peter's talking about the same thing. These false heretics are blaspheming demons the way that Michael refused to blaspheme Satan. Well, I just mentioned that because a lot of people believe it, but I don't. At any rate, we are now finished with Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. False teachers, false prophets. We will continue the same theme in Second Peter 2, 12 through 22. In our next audio, we will take up false prophets and false teachers, part 2. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>